And if you do have your Bible, uh, you can take it and you can open it to the Gospel of John chapter 20. And we're going to get there in just a moment. Um, This is such an important day. It's such a special day uh, in the life of a Christian. This is the best day of the year for believers. Uh, This is the the day that we celebrate that gives meaning and significance to every other Sunday we gather together. The reason we gather on Sundays is because it reminds us that Jesus Christ is not dead, but He is alive. He rose from the grave victoriously, and all those who believe in Him can have life in His name. On Good Friday, if you were with us, we actually started to look at this gospel story, the story of the the cross and the resurrection. And a lot of people are familiar with the story. Maybe you've gone to church for, you know, at different points in your life. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe that's a bit of your background. Maybe you, you didn't, but you've still heard about the gospel. You've heard about this man named Jesus who died and who apparently rose from the grave. You've maybe heard this before. But maybe you haven't quite understood the significance of this story, and one of the reasons I think that happens is because we don't understand the greater story of humanity. And so we began on Good Friday at the very beginning of God's story, and I just simply want to kind of, uh, what I I did in about 35 minutes on Friday, I want to take about five minutes and do for you to catch you up to speed so we can kind of continue that story to the very end of the story. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, the very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, that's, that's arguably the most important statement that we could come to understand and believe, because if that's true, that means that there is a God, it means He created everything, He created every one of us, it means this isn't an accident, it means that God created with intentionality and with purpose. And in the beginning of the Bible, it tells us that God created everything good. It was was perfectly the way He wanted it to be. And the pinnacle of God's creative activity was humanity. God created Adam and Eve, men and women, in His image and likeness, the Bible tells us. And that right there tells us what our very purpose is, what humanity's purpose is. Humanity was created in the image of God. That means that God placed humanity here to reflect Him, His glory. And we were created in His likeness, which means this, that humanity was actually created to live in an intimate and eternal relationship with God. We were created to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy fellowship with Him, to enjoy His presence. The greatest thing God can give to humanity is Himself. The greatest thing humanity can experience in this universe is the God who created it all. And God took Adam and Eve and He placed them in a garden called Eden. Eden, that very word, means delight. The garden was a delight to God and it was a delight to humanity. Everything in it was beautiful, it was good, it was vibrant. God placed it all there for Adam and Eve, for humanity to enjoy. He said, there's just one thing you can't do. There's one tree in the middle of the garden, in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat from that tree. Everything else is yours. Think of the freedom in this statement. It's all yours to enjoy. It's all good. It's for you. I created it for you, and I am with you in the midst of this garden. 
But like we saw on Friday, the blessings of God come with boundaries. Because God, God knows what's good for us. God is good. And so He sets that standard of good. He knows that we must, if we are to enjoy life, if we are to know the true meaning of life, we must actually come under His authority and live under Him as our King. Most of you have heard the story, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. They had it all fantastic. Everything was perfect. And then this serpent comes along, Satan, the adversary, the liar, the deceiver, and he tempts Adam and Eve to disbelieve God. Has God really said? Has God really said you can't do this? The heart of all sin is to question the authority of God. It is to disbelieve the Word of God. It is to refuse to come under the authority of God. And in a moment of weakness, in the face of temptation, Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the forbidden tree. They took and they ate, and in that moment, what God promised He would do came true. He said, if you take from this tree and eat from this tree, you shall surely die. And in an instant, the innocence was gone. Their eyes were opened. They were naked and ashamed. Death entered into the fabric of humanity and the fabric of the universe. Physical death would now be a reality for humanity. Every person would die. We are born in sin, and we will die because of sin. But worse than physical death, what came into the reality of human existence was a spiritual death that is so much more serious, so much more significant. It is separation from the very presence of God. The reason we were created was now fractured and broken, and humanity was kicked out of the garden into exile, out into darkness, forbidden to enter back into the garden and know and enjoy the very presence of God in their midst. But in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the darkness of that moment, God, while he, he laid out the curse upon this earth and the curse upon humanity, He gave His children hope. He told Eve that there was going to be one who was born of the woman who would be from her seed, a seed, a singular seed, a singular offspring, a singular man, and he would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent would bruise his heel. And from that moment on, the story begins to unfold. The anticipation begins to build. Who will be the one to fix this broken world? Who will be the one to come and make all things right? Who will be the one who will come and deal with our sin and bring us back into the presence and fellowship of the God who created us? And we ran through it quickly last week. God begins to give these promises to His children and these patterns and these pictures all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, promise after promise, pattern after pattern, picture after picture. He tells a man named Abraham that, that one was going to be born from his line, his offspring, and through this one, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise begins to narrow in its focus. God led His people from bondage in, in Egypt through Moses. 
He gave them the law, and he gave them the sacrificial system as a picture, as a reminder that that this is who I am. This law shows people who I am and, and how you can know me and how you can follow me. But he knew that they couldn't keep the law. He knew they couldn't be perfect. He knew they couldn't earn their way by their good works back into his presence. And so even in that very law, he provided them with a sacrificial system. Another substitute, an animal, an innocent animal, would die, its blood would be shed in their place so that their sins could be forgiven and they could enter back into the presence of God. The promise begins to sharpen. The focus gets clearer. God says to David, King David, that he would give him a child, someone from his very own line who would be a king and who would rule and reign on his throne forever. Micah the prophet said that this one would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Isaiah in chapter 7 said this one would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53 said this one must be crushed for our iniquities. He must bear our sin. He must be broken for us. And for thousands of years people waited. They waited for the one who alone could make it all right again. And the world waited for light to come into the darkness. And then at the right time, the very time determined by God, God Himself stepped down from heaven to earth. God took upon flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born of the virgin in the town of Bethlehem. And John the Baptist, when he saw him, he looked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Here he is. Here's the one. He will make all things right again. He will forgive our sins. He will restore us back to God. But the world did not know him. The crowds would not believe him. And as we were reminded on Good Friday, Satan, with all his power and rage, attacked him. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, was mocked. He was beaten. He had the flesh torn off his back. He was nailed through his hands and through his feet to a cross of wood. He wore on his head a crown of thorns, and he drowned to death in his own blood in his lungs. He, in that moment, bore our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The curse of sin fell on him, and as he hung there with his last breath, he declared, It is finished. All of the wrath and judgment that we deserve for our sins, He took. He drank the cup of God's wrath, drank it down to the very last drop, and He declared there is no more punishment to be meted out on any who trust in Me for salvation. And after Christ died, the Scriptures tell us that the curtain in the temple that that was there to protect people from entering into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled in a unique way, the curtain was torn in two. 
Sinful people, in other words, could now find their way back into the presence of a holy God. Here in that moment on the cross, God is saying, I am fixing it all. Rebels can now be made right. They can come to me. And after Jesus died, as we celebrate today, they laid him in a tomb. Three days until that fateful morning when they came to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. They looked inside, and He was not there. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead, the angel said. He is not here. He has risen as He said. Jesus Christ defeated sin, death, and Satan. And the message of the resurrection, church, this is the message we celebrate. This is why today is such a big deal. The message of the resurrection is Jesus Christ wins. Amen? Amen. That is the hope of the gospel. Sin is no longer our greatest enemy. Jesus has overcome. Death is nothing we now fear. Jesus has overcome. So, what does that mean now? What difference does that make now? You see, this is what God accomplished for us, but we must understand what God is seeking now to accomplish in us and then through us. You see, just like in the beginning God created, the resurrection of Jesus Christ launches a new beginning. This is what the Scriptures teach, a new beginning where God is creating again. In Christ, the Bible says, God is making all things new. He will bring about a new creation one day, a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin, and those who trust in Jesus will know and enjoy the fullness of His presence again. And while that day is still yet to come, God's creative work and power is on display now as He takes human beings and makes them new creations in Christ. He takes what's dead and He makes them alive. We got to witness that in the waters of baptism today. These were people who were dead in their sins, spiritually, no pulse, no love for God, who have now been recreated, made, made new, made alive in Christ Jesus. People are united to Christ's death and resurrection and have been made new in Him, and God now is making a new humanity a new humanity, a new community who carry forward the mission and plan of Jesus to the world. And what's interesting is if you look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the accounts where the resurrection is brought to the forefront, the individuals who are first alerted to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they run immediately to tell other people. They they can't contain it. They can't hold it in. They have to go tell people. They run to tell the people who knew Jesus. They run to tell the people who are that new community that Jesus was forming, and they declare, He's not there. He's alive. And as Jesus Himself begins to appear to people after His resurrection, He does appear to some people individually, but The Scriptures make a point to to make it clear that He also appears to groups of people who are gathering together. And in a world that is so individualistic and so isolated, we need to see how God is working to create this new humanity, a new community, to understand how we can be made new and join this new humanity. 
where we together embrace what God is accomplishing through us. The end of John here, in John chapter 20, Jesus, after His resurrection, appears to His disciples. Let me read it for us. He says this beginning in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He stood among them, He said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I want you to notice this first. We together are united by him. Notice in this passage that Jesus says a couple of things. First, he declares multiple times, Peace be with you. Now, at this time, the disciples were scared because of the Jews. They were afraid of being attacked. They were afraid of being persecuted because of how they had attached themselves to Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, in this moment, what Jesus is doing is bringing comfort to their fearful souls, but you need to see that it's so much bigger than just this moment. His declaration of peace to them is about Him bringing true peace and true rest rest to their spiritually weary souls. It's about Him bringing true peace and true rest to this broken and weary world. He has come, He has died, He has risen from the grave in order to bring peace to those who are living in hostility and enmity toward Him. You know, we look around this world and it, it's filled with all kinds of chaos, isn't it? There's so much in this world that is heartbreaking. There's so much pain. There's war. There's sickness. There's brokenness. And we feel this in ourselves. We feel the chaos of this broken world. Every single one of us knows what it's like to, to experience fear and worry and anxiety. Peace is elusive, and if we find it, it's only temporary. The Bible tells us the reason we don't have peace is because sin has broken this world. Our our sin has stripped away our peace with one another, but most importantly, our sin has stripped away our peace with God. It has separated us from Him. It has alienated us from Him. And now, because of our sin, we live as rebels in hostility and enmity toward the God who created us to know and love Him. And there are many who long for peace in this world, rightly so. But what we desperately need is peace with the God of this world. And Jesus tells us here that He has come to bring peace. How has He come to do that? Well, look what He does next. He stands in the midst of them, first of all. That's pretty impressive. He just, he just kind of appears in the middle of a room. I mean, if you don't think that's, that's something impressive, then there's already something wrong with you. I don't know why His disciples had any kind of concern about figuring out whether or not this was really Jesus at this point. He, like, walks through the wall. I don't know how He did it, but He's just there. Peter's like, John, I thought you locked the door. He's like, no, I did. 
And then Jesus, they're, they're, Jesus is like, he, he wants them to know it's him. So what does he do? He shows them, he shows them the, the marks, the scars in his hand and his side. You say, why does he do that? Remember, just, you got to put yourself into the context. Just a couple days ago, they literally stood by and watched Jesus being nailed to a piece of wood. They saw it with their very own eyes. They watched the blood dripping down. They saw the agony. They saw the horror and the pain of the one they loved, the one they thought was the Savior of the world, hanging on a tree. And so Jesus goes like this, look, guys, remember what you saw? It's me. Those nail marks, there's just scars now. That, 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 that spear that went into my side to prove that I was dead by that, that Roman soldier, there's the, there's the mark. It's really me. I'm really here. Yes, I died, and yes, I'm alive. They struggled to believe. They struggled to understand the promises of the Scripture. They didn't see it at the time. They struggled to believe when Jesus told them multiple times, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. They just, they couldn't wrap their minds around it. They didn't understand that that Jesus had to take our place. That in order to bring peace, He had to make payment for sin. That His life had to be exchanged for ours. But he couldn't stay in the tomb for that to happen. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, listen, our faith is in vain. Do you realize what, what the cross means? The death of Jesus means that he made payment for sin. But do you want to, want to know what the resurrection means? It means that God accepted the payment. It is only because Jesus is alive that we can have hope, that we too can live, that our sin can actually be dealt with, that we can actually be forgiven, and we can actually live forever with Him for all eternity. Only the resurrection allows us that confidence. And so He stands before them and He says, listen, death could not have the final word. He had to put death to death. He had to overcome the grave. He stood before them, showing them His wounds, declaring that He had done it. Death was the payment. The resurrection was God's acceptance of that payment. But what is so vital to see here is their response. Don't miss this. Do you see how they responded when they saw the wounds? They were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. In other words, they believed it was Him, and in that moment, they believed in Him. They they believed that He was the Son of God. They believed that, that what He said is true, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody can come to the Father but through Him. This is how you have peace, true peace, peace with God. You believe the good news. You believe that you are a sinner. You believe that God died in your place, that He made payment for your sin, and you believe that He rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and Satan, and because He did, you now can have life eternal in Him. What's really interesting here is that there's, there's one disciple who's not present with the, the rest of the disciples. You, you remember his name, Thomas? Doubting, doubting Thomas. What a day to skip church, huh? Look at verse 24. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Again, Jesus loves to do this. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said again, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. But I love this. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Loved ones, if you're in Christ today, this is for you. Jesus said this for you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are united by Him, by what He has accomplished. We are brought into Him and into His finished work on the cross. And as a result, what happens? Look at this secondly. We're united for Him. God renews us and He gives us new purpose. And in verse 21 through 23, we read about Jesus saying to them again, Peace be with you. And then listen to this. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And then he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, you have now the message. You bear the message that can let people know they are either forgiven or they're condemned. You now can go tell people how they can be made right with God. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to be with the Father. And in the meantime, I want you to take this message, the gospel, to the ends of the earth. I want you to tell them who I am. I want you to tell them what I've done. I want you to tell them how their sins can be forgiven, how they can know me and be restored to me. And I want you to tell them, listen, that every ache and every pain, every Every fracture they experience in this life, every bit of heartache is an act of mercy to point them to the simple fact that this world is not right, but Christ is here to fix it all. That's why He came, to to fix sin, to fix us, to fix this world, and, and to give God glory in doing it. And in order to do this, they need the very presence and power of God. What God is going to now call them to is something they cannot do in their own strength and in their own power. And so what does Jesus do? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Why does He breathe on them? I'll tell you why. John is wanting you in your mind to go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 2. Do you remember when he made Adam out of the dust of the ground? What did God do in that moment with Adam? He breathed into him the breath of life, the very power. Don't miss this. Listen, the very power of God to bring what's dead to life animating him now with new life, new power, new purpose. And so God breathes on him and says, I am going to actually fill you and make you new. This, listen, don't miss, this is God beginning a new creation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen, apart from God's grace and intervention, you are dead. You're dead. There are some of you sitting in this room you're dead. I know, you feel a pulse. You're alive physically, but listen, you have no spiritual pulse. You're absolutely flatlined. You have no relationship. You say, how do I know? How do I know if I'm spiritually dead? You have, you have no love for God. You don't, you don't really love Him. 
You have not surrendered to him as king and master. You don't live for him in his glory. You live for you. You live for the pleasures of this world. You live for the things that you can do for yourself in this world. You don't live for God, the one who created it all. And so, so the Bible wants you to know, listen, listen, you're spiritually dead because of your sin. You have no relationship with God. And what you desperately need is for God to breathe on you and bring your dead bones to new life. And God, thankfully, listen, here's the good news. Thankfully, that's what God specializes in. God brings us from death to life in order that we might live and live for Him. And then Jesus, He, he ascended after He spent 40 days on earth. After His resurrection, He ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And 10 days later, on Pentecost, God sends the Holy Spirit who fell on them from heaven. And in power, the church of Christ is born. And then they go and do exactly what God commanded them to do. The book of Acts tells us they were to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth with this gospel message. And if you read through the book of Acts, guess what happens? They take that message in Jerusalem, and they begin to spread it outward from the city center into Judea. They go out into Samaria, and then the book of Acts ends in Rome, which at that point is considered the ends of the earth. They took the gospel out, and God used many of those apostles to write the New Testament so that we would understand who He is and what He's done and and what we are now called to do. And these men understood what they must do for him and for the world. And along the way, for these apostles, this this faithfulness to Christ did not come without a cost. Most of them would end up giving their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I just want to read you really quickly this this list, a bit of a historical background here. There's a little bit of dispute of some of these dates and places, but for the most part, it seems pretty accurate. It seems like there's significant consensus, but just listen, listen to how the, the 12 disciples ended their life. Listen to this. James, the son of Zebedee, he's beheaded in Jerusalem in 44 A.D. Philip, the evangelist, is crucified in 54 A.D. Matthew, the tax collector, he's beheaded in 60 A.D. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is burned to death in Cyprus in 64 A.D. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is dragged to death in Alexandria in 64 A.D. Peter, who wrote the books of First and Second Peter, was crucified upside down. History, uh, church tradition tells us, because he said he was not worthy to die the death of his Lord. He died in Rome in 64 A.D. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem in 62 or 63 AD. Paul, the former persecutor of the church who wrote a significant portion of the New Testament, was tortured and beheaded by Nero in 67 AD. Nathaniel was flayed and crucified in 70 AD. Thomas, tradition says, was speared to death in India in 70 AD. Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, was stoned to death. Luke, the beloved physician, was hanged. John, perhaps the only one to die peacefully, was exiled on the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, which we're going to look at in just a moment. You see, why are you telling us this? This is Easter Sunday. Here's my question. Why? Why? Why would these men willingly lay down their lives like this? Here's why. Because they had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
They saw him crucified and they saw him resurrected and they knew it was all true. They believed that because he rose from the grave, one day he would, he would rise, he would raise them, excuse me, from the grave as well. So they took this gospel to the ends of the earth and that's why in this room nations are represented. That's why sitting around us are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue because the disciples were faithful to do exactly what God commanded them to do and the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, ever since has been faithful to follow the commands of our Lord. You say, why? Why are we doing this? One of the reasons we boldly and courageously and passionately proclaim this message and seek to persuade others is because we too have had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Amen? That's why we do this. Like maybe you're saying, why, why do my friends keep telling me about Jesus? Maybe you got invited. Why do, they, why do I come into a place like this and they keep singing about the blood, the blood, the blood? That is weird. Why do they keep doing that? Why do their whole lives seem to revolve around this, this Jesus thing, this gospel thing, this church thing? Here's why. Because we have had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and our lives have never been the same. And we long for you to know what we know, to believe what we believe, so that you can have the life that we now have in Him, by Him, and now to live for Him. There's one more reason why why we're so passionate about this, because we know that there is a day when Jesus will come again. But when He comes again, He's not going to come as a lamb, but as a lion. He's not going to come to save the world, but to judge the world And for those who are in Christ, listen, our confident expectation is that we together will be united with Him. This is the end goal. And I just want to draw your attention to a few passages as we close our time together from the book of Revelation, again, written by John while he was in exile. Listen to what it says about the, the return of Jesus, chapter 19. In verse 11, he says this, John's seeing this vision, and he says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's speaking of Jesus. Listen to how he describes him. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That is the blood of his enemies. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written. Look at the church. King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Jesus, this isn't some, you know, simply some meek peasant who was born of a virgin in a, in a town called Bethlehem. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will return at any moment to call people to account. And, and the Lord actually gives us a picture in chapter 20 of what this day will look like. Look at verse 11 in chapter 20. John says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is Jesus again. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they would have gotten what they deserved. God's wrath for eternity the just judgment of God, because God is, listen, He's holy, and He is good, and that means He deals with sin and evil. And again, I say this because there are some who are sitting in this room who do not know Christ. Some of you have not confessed your need for Him. Some of you have not turned from your sin and cast yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Some of you have not been forgiven of your sins and been clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God Himself stands ready and willing with arms open wide for you to do that even today. And I'm not trying to scare you with a picture of hell, but this is where the Bible leads us to at the very end. God wants us to know that all of history is moving to a single moment. And every single one of us will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for everything we have ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, and every motive behind it all. God has books that contain every part of your life and mine. And now there, there are many who believe, listen, that they're good people, that, they're, that the things written in those books, they've got to be good things. I'm not that bad, but that is contrary to what the Scriptures teach. There are none good, no, not one. And I want you just to take a moment to think about, listen, especially if, you're, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about the book of your life being opened up before God one day. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, just laid bare, totally exposed, absolutely naked. All of us, listen, all of us would be exposed and we will all, if this would be true of us, be shown to be who we truly are, not good, but sinners, sinners and rebels. And if you stand before Him in your sin, you will not be united with Him. You will, in fact, be separated from Him for all eternity. The only thing that will matter in the end is this, listen, is my name written in the book of life. There's only one way this can happen. And that is through Christ Jesus who died for your sins and He rose from the dead. Trust in Him, the Scriptures say. For those who do, the Bible concludes with this picture. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And then chapter 22, look at it, beginning with verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each, in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. They will see His face. Genesis 1 begins with life in the garden where life is perfectly good with God. Sin destroys all of that, separating us from this life and putting us all under the reign of death. Christ comes and He, he fixes what sin has destroyed, opening up the way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to be given new life in Him, and He unites us to Himself. He unites us to a new humanity, a new community, a new family, and promises that He will be with us to the end of this age, after which He will bring about a new heaven and a new earth in which we will be united with Him forever and ever. We will see His face. And it is there that we will sing of His glory forever and ever. We get a bit of a glimpse of the song. Just listen. The song that the hymn of heaven, the saints sing, Worthy are you. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then they say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. You see, what we do here, and what we do not only today, but every Sunday is a prelude of that day. Do you realize that, Christian? You see, we together are united to Him, by Him, for Him, and one day we will be united with Him. You say, when will that day be? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I hope you will be there with me. And I know this, the final words of Jesus Christ Himself at the very end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, they'll be on the screen, look at what He says. Here's what Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And we all say with John, who responds like this, amen, come Lord Jesus. Jesus.